resident engineer John Fenton, lighting specialist to Arc Welcome to Residential Tech Talks. I'm Jeremy Glowacki, Executive Editor of Residential Tech Today. On this week's podcast, Peter Aylett joins me from his home in England to talk about his work on industry standards and recommended best practices, as well as, as his career in custom integration in the UK and the Middle East, and his current role as partner with Maurizio Conti at HTE, an Italian-based turnkey room design company for home cinemas and mastering studios. Peter is a 30-year veteran of the residential tech industry and is well-known and respected among his peers as a mentor, teacher, and lecturer on home technology. He has been teaching on behalf of Cedia for more than 20 years and has served a term on Cedia's global board of directors. Peter is currently chair of the Cedia CTA R10 Standards Committee and is a passionate advocate for creating standards and best practices for home tech installation. Peter Aylett, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Jeremy. Great to be here after all this time. Absolutely. Um, for those who know you but maybe have not been keeping up with your career as closely, you may have missed the news that you um, had started with HTE. Uh, I briefly described what, what that company is, but last time I kind of checked in on you or was aware, I thought you were still with uh, Archimedia um, handling design and installation work, and you're you're a UK guy, but you're working in the Middle East. Is that correct? It was correct. Um, towards the end of 2019, I, I took the decision that, you know what, my passion is building audiovisual experiences. Um, I kind of got a bit fed up with the whole integration world, all these little stupid $10 boxes that one fails and it, it, it takes down a million dollar system. And I, I just really, really wanted to get back to the purity of, of delivering amazing audiovisual experiences. So I've known Maurizio now for 15, 20 years. Um, I've taught in Italy a couple of times, got to know him really well there. And early last year, um, in around February, I, I made the change um, to go and work with Maurizio at HTE. Um, little did I know that about three weeks after I joined, the world changed. So <laughs> um, not only did I make a really big break from being an integrator for 30 years and now working for a company, we, we still do some integration work, but um, it's mainly okay. a manufacturer, um, everything yeah. changed. So yeah, it, it's been a really, really interesting last 18 months. Well, and Italy got hit so hard and was locked down completely there at the beginning as well. So that must have been tough with with your partnership there um, with, among other things. I mean, in England, I'm sure, was not quite better <laughs> during the pandemic. But uh, you, did you guys just stop working entirely for a while? No, th things carried on in Italy in the factory pretty much as normal. But um, okay. it, it's just crazy to think that the last time Maurizio and I saw each other face to face, so we're business partners, we're really good friends, we're on Zoom calls every day talking about business development and product development and talking to customers about projects. The last time I saw Maurizio was August last year. So we've not we've yeah. not seen each other for 10 and a half months face to face. And that's that that has been difficult because you there's only so much you can do over a Zoom call. You can get all the functional stuff done. But when it comes yeah. down to just sitting down for a couple of days, having loads of flip charts, loads of post-it notes, you know, really brainstorming and going wide, uh, that's certainly been challenging. But 
projects have carried on. And it's, okay. it, it has been quite interesting because previously Maurizio went out and at least kicked off the installations. But um, especially with all our customers in the US, which currently is our busiest markets, we haven't mm. been able to do that. So yeah. um, we've, we've developed some really, really cool resources. And also Maurizio now just starts people off um, over a video call. And mm-hmm. I think what our customers are realizing is, oh, actually, it is as easy as you say it is. We, we don't mm-hmm. need Maurizio to come out and build it. We, we can build these rooms on our own. So that's, that's been a really, really interesting change to the business model with COVID as the catalyst. So explain a little bit more about what the business is for HTE in terms of the build out of this room. Are you, do you have standard designs that you're presenting or is, it, is every one of them a custom creation based on what the client and dealer uh, input is on that project? How does it, how's it work? Is it mostly, are you talking acoustic room treatment sort of stuff or is it just the entire build out of a, of a space? I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Maurizio's story. Um, Maurizio has been an integrator for 36, 37 years. I know he doesn't look it and, and he'll, he'll <laughs> thank me for that comment. But, um, <laughs> back in the mid two thousands, Maurizio just got fed up of the unpredictability of private cinema builds. And when, when I say that, if you look at the old way of doing it, you, you probably have a general contractor on the site. You then have mm-hmm. a carpenter putting some timber bits up. You have someone designing the acoustics. You have the integrator figuring out the technical package. What's the projector? What's the screen? Where do the speakers go? How do I spec this? You then have another manufacturer of acoustic treatment. You then maybe want to cover everything with, with some stretched fabric. So there's one supplier for fabric and one supplier for the stretched fabric system. Then maybe you want some furniture in the room. So you've got to employ someone else to build the furniture. And then maybe you want the seating to to sort of blend with the whole aesthetic of the room and those design elements to carry through. So by the time's all said and done, you you end up with you know between five and ten different contractors, and you know what it's like on a project that those those last few days before handover are really 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 stressful. And and Maurizio just thought there, there's got to be a better way. Hmm. And an HTE was born, and we we call what we do acoustic interior design. And our our kind of catchphrase is: "You think design will handle the acoustics?" So, uh, to, to now answer your question, we we really work in in a number of different ways. Um, we we have our own designs. Maurizio is a fantastic interior designer. We have another couple of Italian interior designers we work with. So if someone comes to us and says, I want a room, we can drive the entire interior design process. If there's already an interior designer on the project, then um, we'll, we'll have a deep conversation with them to understand their requirements. We'll also do just a little mini here are the really important things to understand when it comes to how the interior design of a room affects the performance of the room. Um, and then we we tend not to have too many troubles. And, you know, the, indus- the industry is always saying, oh, but interior designers are a nightmare. I don't, I haven't, I haven't found that. If you go into a situation and tell them what to do, they, they're going to push, they're going to push back. 
And mm-hmm. when when most people say, "Oh, but interior designers don't understand; they want to do stupid things in the room," well, it it it's not because they're malicious. It's not because they're trying to be awkward. Most of the time, it's that they they just don't know any better. And they actually, mm-hmm. I I've found that most of them appreciate learning. They appreciate you sitting down with them and explaining. Well, here are all the things that make a great immersive experience when it when it comes to AV. So at, at HTE, we, we supply as much or as little as the room fit out as possible. We only sell through integrators because the, mm-hmm. the entire experience is a combination between the technical package that the integrator is going to look after and the interior design that, that we look after. And then as far as the acoustics, we, we build the rooms in a completely different way to anyone else. So we, we don't really make acoustic treatments we mm. build the interior of the room and the acoustics are built in to the way we construct the interior. So we we don't separate the concepts of interior build and acoustics. We, we integrate it all in one. And because that gives us vast swathes of surface area to, de- to deal with in the room, um, we, we can play some really, really clever acoustic tricks and the you know the the thing we do that's fundamentally different to everyone else is we don't make bass traps um, mm. because we handle the entire wall. Effectively, the entire wall becomes a bass trap. Okay. So um, it's it's just a very very complete, very very holistic way of 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 building a room rather than getting lots of other different subcontractors involved. Everything is manufactured in northern Italy. Um, um, in a very, very modular way. So when it comes to going on site, so long as all the dimensions are correct, um, it's not really building, it's 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 fitting it. So if, okay. if you know how to drive a drill and, and you can screw a bracket on the wall, then those are all the skills you need to then fit what is a prefabricated system into a room. And so with having that worldwide client base, and you said it, uh, the U.S. is a big um, driver right now for your business, it, it's all about getting that material shipped um, to those job sites then and having it very well uh, labeled, I suppose, for the, for the assembly then on the other end for those integrators that are not uh, down the street from you. It, it is, and it is exactly that. Each of the panels has a number on it. We, we supply drawings that have numbers. And so long as the dimensions of the room are correct, because everything's be, been prefabricated, it all it all fits. And I, I have no doubt when we're allowed to travel to the US again, there will be some projects and some clients that will say, no, I would like Maurizio to come over here and mm. supervise the build. And that's fine. But Maurizio is reassuringly expensive. So <laughs> what, what we've also found is that by by allowing integrators to do it themselves, they they make more profit. And that's mm. that's really an essential part of our value proposition because um, there's a lot of money left on the table where the integrator only provides the technical package in the acoustic treatments. If then sure. the rest of the build is is done by other contractors or the clients' contractors, there's very little money in that, and they yeah. they can't at the end of the day say we built this. This this is mm-hmm. a uniquely our brand room because they haven't built it all they they've left a lot of it to other people and and with hte it really allows a dealer to say to a customer you give us four walls a floor and a ceiling and we we can deal with creating the entire experience within that room that's really interesting i hadn't thought about it before but you're usually 
uh, allowing that general contractor to, to do the, the structure around the electronics. So here's this opportunity to really expand your um, not only ability to own that room completely, like you just said, but to expand your skills just to be more than just electronics. So um, it's a very hands-on experience there for them. That, that's, uh, that's a cool thing. Are you still seeing uh, integrators that are reluctant to do the, that portion of it and they're handing, they're sort of involving a general contractor, a builder type person to do the wall uh, installation then? Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because we, we find it a lot harder to get through the inertia of a very established contractor that yeah. has established relationships and they and they create beautiful rooms um do we think one of ours is going to be better maybe do we think it's going to be easier Al- almost certainly but they're they're quite happy with what they're doing where we're really getting traction is is with newer integrators mm. um that are approaching the business model with a with a completely blank sheet yeah um, and, and and the other the other thing we're seeing more of is just a bit more of an appreciation that an acoustics isn't just for an entertainment space. Um, if, if you take a dining room, what's the purpose of a dining room? Well, the answer is not to eat. You know, if, you, if you're going to have a utility bit of food, you can have that anywhere. You can have that on your lap whilst you're watching TV. The purpose of mm-hmm. a dining room is, is socializing and socializing right. is all about speech. And if if you have this very very live, very very reverberant environment with everyone talking, it's just not a pleasant place to be. So right. you know, to, to to me, this this whole question of acoustics needs to be brought much more to the forefront of the conversation for integrators, because um, architects and interior designers they're they're fantastic at making things look beautiful. But there's so many spaces, certainly I walk into, that look beautiful, but it's this cathedral-like space with hard surfaces mm. everywhere, and they're just not very human-centric. They're just not very pleasant, natural places to have conversations. So, you know, as as well as looking at um, specialist rooms for entertainment, we we really try and bring that conversation of just looking at the how a building sounds and not just when it's reproducing content, but when you're just standing there in a room having a conversation to make that acoustic as natural as possible. Right, right. Very cool. Well, I I wanted to shift the conversation a little bit back to more of the biographical background uh, of your career. And I like to talk to people in the custom integration industry about how they got interested in tech and how early on that sort of was apparent to them. It looks like you you studied some... uh, some maybe engineering in college is that correct university um you see so you were you're technically minded in school and you can clarify that but how early on did you know you liked working with technology or putting things together um was that some, something you figured out as a kid very much so my my dad was a real um hi-fi nerd my parents okay. were massive classical music enthusiasts and I was very, very, very privileged to to grow up in London, and my parents would go to at least a concert a week, and they mm. figured out quite early on that rather than pay for a babysitter, it was way, way less expensive just to take me with them. And there was yeah. the acceptance, if I enjoyed it, I enjoyed it. If I didn't, I just curled up and fell asleep as a young child. <laughs> so I, okay. I, I grew up with a, with a fabulous appreciation of, of classical music, 
which my friends kind of taunted me about, but mm. you know, they're they're now coming round forty five years later, <laughs> um, and and just an appreciation of of um, different environments and different acoustics. But more than that, my because my dad was a hi fi enthusiast, he used to build his own speakers, and he he got me involved with that quite early, um, and. I I was actually a fairly hopeless student. I'm I'm one I'm one of these people that has to be really really engaged from a practical level to be good at something. Mm. And I spent three years at university studying mechanical and production engineering, and I just didn't see the point. I mm. I didn't I didn't enjoy it. Um, and in my final year, I wrote to ten different hi-fi stores in London. I got replies from three of them. I got interviews at two. And um, in on, I know the exact date because it was the day after my birthday, and I was a little bit hungover. But on <laughs> July twenty third, um, nineteen ninety, I started working for um, Graham's Hi Fi in in North London, and that was just an amazing apprenticeship. It was it was just such a, a joyful company to work at the, at the time. Um, it had a just a fantastic client focused ethos, which I've never forgotten. Um, it was really, really geeky, and and the and the geekiness was and we we evaluated products in a fantastic way that the the manufacturer would come in, leave the product, and then one of us would would take it home for a couple of weeks, put it into our system, learn everything possible about it, and um, three days every week before the shop opened, we had now a staff training. And the staff training was the individual with the product. Okay, here it is. Let's listen to it. This is what I found out about it. And then we as a group would decide on on whether to sell it or not. And that mm. that uh, just appreciation of reproduced audio then became my passion throughout my career. And towards the end of my Graham's time, we got more into multi-room. And then sort of mm. in the early 90s, the whole beginnings of, of, of automation. Um. And I, I left Graham's in 96, um, did a couple of other things. In 98, my wife and I decided to sell our apartment in North London and put all of the profits into traveling around the world for a couple of years. So wow. the first part was um, effectively we drove from the UK to India. Um, amazing trip. You know, I've, I've, I've shot fake Kalashnikovs with the Taliban um, I had a 30-gun, 30-round um, salute by the PKK on the Turkish-Iranian border on my on my 30th birthday. Learned wow. fabulous life lessons, had an amazing time, came back completely broke and <laughs> with Catherine, five months pregnant with our first child, and then went to work for another company that just had a, another profound effect on my career, which was SMC, Steve Moore's company in, oh, in yes. London. Mm -hmm. um, stayed there for about four years and Steve was the one that got in, introduced me to, to Cedia. And, okay. um, I found myself on Cedia's education committee cool. and we were, we were talking about what we want to do and we, we, we concluded we need to employ someone full time. So I left that meeting and thought, Hmm, why don't I write myself a job description and at the next meeting, uh, present that and say, I'd love to do the job. So back in 2005, I started working for Cedia and I was director for professional development. So my scope was education, certification and outreach. Um, and I was at Cedia from 2005 to, to 2011. Again, 
an amazing time, learnt loads, met loads of people, travelled the world evangelising about CEDIA and, and, did, and did a lot of teaching. In one of my classes in 2008, I met Omar Hikal, who came to the mm-hmm. UK for a one-week course I was teaching. Uh, we got on really, really well. I gave him a lift back to Heathrow because it was on my way to the airport at the um, end of the day on Friday. And he said, you need to come and work for me in Dubai. And my answer was very simple. I said, it's really interesting, but all the money in the world would not get me living in in the Middle East. I just didn't want to live there. So from um, 2011 to early early last year, I, I worked for Archimedia. But what most people don't realize is I was actually based in the UK. And, and, that was, and that was good because my responsibilities were across all the business units. And mm-hmm. at the time, we had eight offices across five countries, about 150 people, and we worked daily in eight different, in eight different currencies. So it was, you know, it was, it was incredible. And people that say to me now, oh, COVID remotely, all these people here, there and everywhere, it's a nightmare. I kind of look at that and go, yeah, but it can work. You, yeah. it, it, you can get international cooperation and relationships going. Um, and I, again, I had an amazing time at Archimedia, decided that I, you know, towards the, I, I just wanted to follow my passion and get back to my roots, which was audio. So that brings me back to, to HTE. But throughout, throughout the whole time, ever since Steve introduced me to Cedia, I've just been so, 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 so passionate about the the whole idea of Cedia, the whole idea of community, the whole idea of sharing, the whole idea of education, the whole idea of of of, of standards, and I th- I think it's it's those things that really make up the essence of Cedia. Well, I think that you've you've seen from the U.S. perspective the growth of the international Cedia presence, and obviously there were separate shows for a while and uh, separate associations, and then the merger and then um, the real the real focus on on making a global board as opposed to just a U.S. board, and um, I was just wondering what observations being so intervo- involved with the association have you seen between the different international types of integrators? You know what what are the differences? I guess it would be build um, sort of structure differences and maybe older structures in the UK versus new construction and that type of thing. But it, it, are, are there similarities that are pretty pretty much common throughout or are there big differences in the way you do things uh, in different countries versus in the US if most of my audience might be listening from the US and curious about that? I think I think technically there's there's very, very little difference globally um there's there's this phrase this country is 10 years behind this country and mm. i don't necessarily think that's true i think different countries have different emphases on on what they want in in central europe um sort of germany and around there there's there's a huge amount of automation um knx is 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 this monster that if if you say knx to most american integrators they'll sort of go yeah i've 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 heard about that but i don't know much about it in europe it's dominated K- knx mm. absolutely dominates but but fundamentally it's all about you you press a button there's some software interpreting that in the middle and then and then something happens 
And that's that's the same globally from a technical perspective. Culturally, there are there are massive differences. Um, there are massive differences um, also with with how much space you've got to play with. In mm. you, you have a you know apart from the big cities, you have a lot of space in the in the US. You right. you can kind of go horizontal. Um, mm-hmm. In London, most London houses are very very vertical. Right. So lots of square footage, but maybe spread out over five or six floors. Mm-hmm. So you you get a lot of exercise when you do work in in those London houses, <laughs> running up running up and down the stairs. Right. In in the in the Middle East, um, there's there's the whole spectrum. I've I've worked on palaces for rulers of countries, wow. um, and in in Dubai um, and in Abu Dhabi, you you have some apartments that really you know very very expensive, but really really aren't very big. Um, mm-hmm. And I, and I think the most interesting international perspective I've got is some of the best work I've seen globally, some of the best work I've seen anywhere in the world, and I think some of the best integrators that I've seen anywhere in the world are actually in India. In mm. in India, India is an amazing country. It's the only country I've taught in where I've been teaching something technical and I've not had blank looks when I've done some basic maths. Everywhere in the world... You started teaching something technical, and you realized actually you've got to teach some basic maths. I say maths, Americans say math. You know what I mean, right? You've yes. you've got to teach basic math. In India, mm-hmm. never the case. The, the The level of basic education there is is phenomenal. Same hmm. same in China, and you know I th- I think as as an industry we, we may be in in these very mature markets like the UK and the US look down on countries like India and China, but we, we, we shouldn't be, we should, we should be looking up to them. And it's, I, I just, it really warms my heart in the um, EMEA awards every year that um, so many of the winners of the CEDA awards and are now coming from non-European countries. There's, there's just some amazing work being done globally. Con- construction wise, things tend to be duplicated in the Middle East, um, you're you're dealing with poured concrete boxes all the time. In in the UK and across Europe, it's 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 a real mix of construction. But the, the similarities way 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 outweigh the um, differences. Well, I want to continue talking about this and more about your standards work, um, but uh, I do need to take a short break for a little commercial, and uh, we'll return after that. Founded in 2005 by a team of highly skilled audio veterans, Wet Sounds is an award-winning Texas-based marine audio company bringing a level of performance, style, and durability unparalleled in the audio industry. Wet Sounds is proud to introduce you to the Venue Series 110-volt, 1200-watt four-channel amplifier system. The VS1200 amplifier was specifically designed to power Venue Series products while utilizing a 110-volt power source. Included is the VSLSENC, a purpose-built landscape enclosure designed to house the Wet Sounds VS1200 amp with the plug-and-play media center in harsh outdoor environments. Learn more, visit wetsounds.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Peter Aylett. And uh, Peter, I wanted to talk about the uh, the involvement you've had with, with Cedia uh, beyond just all the basic education stuff in classes that are really important, but that standards building and best practices. Uh, I, I did mention to you uh, before the recording that I, I'd been listening to your conversation on the Cedia podcast 
uh, a year ago, and the conversation was in about standards versus recommended best practices and how there's some definite differences there because you can't make a strict standard on something maybe like audio necessarily because there's some artistic uh, license there involved. So um, I wondered if you could just explain what you've been involved with specifically um, and then also we could get into an overview of what all has been doing being, being done here between CD and CTA. One of one of the when I was a CD staff member, one of one of the questions most leveled was um, why can't CDA be a regulating association? Mm-hmm. Why why can't it regulate installations? And the very very simple answer is if if you're inspecting something, it can't be your opinion if it's if it's right or wrong. And so so much of what we do as an industry, that there, there are wrongs, but there are many 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 rights. So mm-hmm. it's it's someone's interpretation of a client brief, someone's interpretation of what the solution and the experience is with all the architectural integration compromises and budget compromises built in. So it's really, really difficult to say what's right and what's wrong. And that's, that's really where standards came in. Um, the keynote speaker at this year's Cedar Expo is going to be Poppy Crumb from Dolby. And mm-hmm. she, she's just got the, the, the coolest job title. Uh, she's chief scientist at, at Dolby. And she, you know, it, it, it's not about Atmos. She, she is going to change the world in terms of um, the, the science and more importantly, the neuroscience around um, predicting what you're feeling. So she, she is all about reading, reading emotion and where that's going to take us as, as an industry. And she did a senior podcast a few weeks ago, and, and she, she made a fantastic statement, which I thought, yes, I love this. She said, and I'll see if I can remember this right, um, standards ensure consistency of experience. And really, that's, that's what a standard or a recommended practice is all about. And the difference between a standard and a recommended practice is a standard will say you shall a recommended practice will say you should. Mm-hmm. So the most of the things that Cedia develop are recommended practices because as exactly mm-hmm. as you said, there there is some interpretation in terms of the art. It, it, it's, a, it's a guidance to say, if you do this every time, you will get a really, really consistent and good predictable result. Yeah, and that, that's that's a really interesting comment from from poppy because uh when you get down to it you can get really esoteric and somewhat boring with some of this stuff but when it comes down to it it's that experience from the from the client the end user that 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 magical lost in the movie or lost in the the music sort of experience that you you want to create help them create for themselves there and to not have irritating um flaws in the way that it's presented or distractions when you're trying to just lose yourself in it. So to be able to allow that magic to happen, I think, um, by, by being consistent is, is really a, a key point there that you kind of, it's easy to forget about when you're talking technical detail sometimes, I think. It, it is easy. And, um, with, if, if you split the audio from the video, the, the video is quite easy because everything in video is measurable. You you mm. you get um, sure. a spectroradiometer. You point at a screen. It gives you a number. It's very easy to say no. No, that is wrong. 
So video right. is much more about numbers. Audio is much, 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 much harder. And one of the things when developing these recommended practices, the question we always ask ourselves is, what, what is this doing to better deliver the artistic intent of the content creators? So in mm -hmm. a way, it, it, it's not about what you like. It's not about what I like. And mm -hmm. in a way, it's actually not about what the customer likes. It's, a, <laughs> it's about delivering that content to best represent the artistic intent of, of the content maker. And when, when we're building a recommended practice, it, it can't be about what I like. It can't be about what you like. It's got to be about that consistency of experience. And one, one example is, you know, it's a really simple one. It's, it's, it's tonality of a, of a system. Mm -hmm. And in, in today's era of DSP and an EQ, tonality almost doesn't matter anymore because as as long as the processor isn't isn't screwing things up the, the first rule of electroacoustics and acoustics is do no harm and mm -hmm. and quite often the the second you you do anything you can actually do a lot lot more harm than good with eq but with it with the assumption that um the processor is actually doing a good job and the acoustics yeah. of the room aren't screwing it up if you wanted a little bit brighter, that's really easy. If you just wanted a little bit softer, that's that's really, really easy. So when when we talk about these recommended practices, when we talk about these levels of performance, we're always we're always going back to this this idea of reference level and this idea of when the content creators at every single stage when they were sitting in a in a mixing room or on a dubbing stage, what is it that they're experiencing in that room? And how are we translating that experience into the customer's home to deliver as close as possible to what that artistic intent is? So how do you figure that out? What, what gives you the guidance on what that intent is supposed to just say sound like? It's we we are trying not to reinvent the wheel. And what I what I mean by that is there there are a number of other amazing engineering institutions. If you take the AES, the Audio Engineering Society, if you take Sympathy, let's get this right, the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers, if you take the EBU, mm -hmm. the European Broadcasting Union, you've then got Dolby, you've then got DTS, you've you've then got Oro, um, you've then got other companies like Fraunhofer de developing compression algorithms. There's there's a huge amount of scientific work out there. And one of the very common things that we do in a recommended practice is, is reference what we would call a normative reference. And a normative reference is is us saying this this is a piece of peer-reviewed um, empirical scientific research. That, that we are taking and, and embracing. And that is, that is then a normative part of our work. So okay. there, are, there are so many different works from, from some amazing people. One of, one of the books we constantly come back to is Floyd Tool's uh, book, Sound Reproduction. Um, mm -hmm. If you are in this, for want of a better description, CDA channel industry, and you build high-performance mm -hmm. audio environments, that is a book you need to be really, really familiar with. So our meetings, um, there is a lot of original thought, but what what we're really there to do is, is aggregate 
those decades and that and that wealth of of other people's em, empirical research that's that's out there. So in terms of what what does it mean when something sounds good? We've we've split this idea of good down into three very very broad areas. The first one is dynamic range, and um, mm-hmm. everyone thinks all oh, dynamic range is all about it going loud. Well, actually, it's way more important that you've got a very very low noise floor. Loud is useful for some right. content. Low noise floors useful for every content. The second one mm-hmm. um, is timbre, slightly esoteric concept, but timbre is basically saying accuracy of tonality. And the third one is spatial resolution. So especially with today's immersive audio format, spatial resolution Mm -hmm. is about placing the sound um, exactly where the content creators wanted to place it. But here's the hardest thing about any room design for every listener. So it's quite easy to engineer a really, really, really good room for one person. It's staggeringly harder when your listening area is a greater proportion of of the whole room area. And a lot of what we talk about in RP22 isn't just about optimizing the experience for one individual. It's trying to optimize that experience for everyone in the room. Right, right. Now, the the newer part of this whole standards making and best practices is the cooperation between CDA and CTA. Uh, how have you seen that affect the way this works? And has it, I'm assuming made it just more inclusive and better, or is it easier just to get more traction because CTA is such a larger organization affecting the whole of consumer electronics? How, how has that arrangement been uh, received or changed things in your perspective? It's, it's it's amazing. Um, if if you look at the majority of integrators, the vast 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 majority of integrators have never studied anything at college, at university, postgraduate that's anything to do with the technical side of what they do. We 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 come from everywhere. I did mechanical and production engineering. I mean, I've I've basically forgotten most of it. I did a year of thermodynamics. Please don't ask me about. I've, I I have no idea. So the the seedier side of it comes to the table with a, a pragmatic practitioner's approach. We're the people in the trenches making mm-hmm. this happen. With the CTA, most of the standards work that CTA does. So we're we're R ten. We're called R ten. The only reason we're called R ten is um, there's already an R one two three four five six seven eight and nine which are other CTA standards groups. And most CTA standards Mm. groups are concerned with product and component level standards. We're concerned with, okay, okay, the other standards lead you to a black box. Our discussion is how do we leverage that black box pragmatically in the real world? And the the reason it's fantastic to have uh, more CTA people on it is these tend to be people with serious, serious, serious engineering backgrounds these are the people that mm-hmm. design the projectors that design the amplifiers that that design the processors and that that level of of engineering integrity is is fantastic to have so you you have people on the call who are the practitioners to say in the real world this is what i need you have people mm-hmm. on the call who are the real engineers but they've never been through the whole life cycle of of selling 
of designing, of documenting, of installing, of calibrating, of handing over and supporting a cinema. And, you know, it's it's my job as chair of um, RP22. It's Anthony Gramani's job as chair of RP1. It's Joel Silver and Jason Dustel's job as the co-chairs of the upcoming revision of RP23, which is going to be the video. It's our jobs as the chairs to, to just bring all these people together leverage their skills and and just have this amazing combination of the academic engineering with the pragmatic where the practitioners that have to implement it in the real world so just so everybody's clear what these different standards um groups that you just mentioned are can you go through which what what each one is trying to create a standard for within the r10 group as a whole Within within R10, there's a number of different work groups. So work group one is audio, and work group three is is video, and then there's there's some others that are currently dormant and not working on anything. And currently under under working group one, um, there is an existing recommended practice that used to be called CEB22. Not very catchy. It was CEB <laughs> because that used that stood for Consumer Electronics Bulletin, and that was when the, the CTA ran R10. We've now renamed them all to RP. So if it's a recommended practice, it starts with RP. Okay. And CEB22 was written in 2009. And we're now only updating it in, well, the effort started two years ago, but it's going to be finished this year. That's 12 years between revisions. One of the things as, as the chair of R10, I'm going to make sure never happens again, is, is leaving that revision so so long and now see during control of r10 we we can be a lot more responsive and dynamic to updates so currently in progress there's rp22 which is the recommended practice for multi-channel audio room design there's mm-hmm. rp23 that's about to be revised that's going to be chaired by joel silver um, from isf and jason dustel from radio and that's going to be video design that's going to okay. have some significant updates because the last version didn't discuss HDR. It didn't discuss large format flat panels. It didn't discuss high frame rate. Mm. So there's going to be lots okay. of new stuff in there. And the other mm-hmm. one, which um, I'm, I'm really excited about, started about three months ago, but has, has been in people's heads for years, which is RP1. And I like the fact it's one because it, it's the genesis. It's the beginning. And that's called performance facts. And this was an idea that Anthony Gramani had probably four or five years ago that he presented to the CDA board. And it was a plea that as engineers, manufacturers just don't give us the specs that we need to take engineering decisions about what to do. If, if a loudspeaker manufacturer says power handling 250 watts, I or any other engineer will have absolutely no idea what that means. What, is, what, what does that mean? Is that short term? Is that long term? With what signal? With what crest factor? We have no idea what that means. So RP1 is to create a recommended practices for a manufacturer to say, here is the data that we require of your product so that we as engineers can make engineering decisions because one, once this theater, this this cinema, this media room is built, you can't really go back and change it. it, it it's not hi-fi. You you can't take the pair of speakers back and then and then try another one. We've got to be able to predict what that performance is. So RP1 is all about engineering engineering data. 
and there's going to be some really, really, really profound changes. Um, some some things I think that are going to blow people's minds. Well, the, the 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 one I'll give away is that um, we're we're actually not uh, putting what's particularly high up on what's necessary. We're basing everything on voltage. Hmm. Because um, watts, there's so many variables to that. So for an amplifier, the specification is going to be long-term and short-term voltage capacity at 2, 4, 6, and 8 ohms. If you then have a loudspeaker with um, this, this is the lowest impedance that it goes in its impedance curve, and the maximum short and long-term voltage capacity of the speaker is this, it's then so easy to match an amplifier with a speaker with and this this current watts thing okay. it's it's actually very very difficult so i'm i'm hugely excited both from a recommending practices point of view but also from a teaching perspective it means that when when the data is available and we have performance facts and we have the recommended practices when i'm teaching cinema design for cedia um it it's going to be completely different because we can we can do it in a much 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 more engineering way um, and it, I, I, I do, I do laugh sometimes on forums where someone shows a photo of a of a room, and the question is, what speaker should I get? And most of the answers are one word, a brand. And I just think, but mm. but how can you say that? You you know you know nothing. You know nothing about the, the the requirements. You know nothing about the seating. You know nothing about what the expectation is. You know nothing about budget. And even if you did, to try and then use engineering to select a speaker is very, very difficult because the data is not available. Right. So my 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 wish, my my crusade, is that as an industry we we move away from tribalism. And what I mean by that is just is being a dealer for a product, because the way most things get specified is I'm I'm a dealer for these three loudspeaker manufacturers. I'm going to try and fit one of those loudspeakers into into the requirements of this room, and I want to flip that around. I want there to be discovery, which is needs analysis. What are the requirements for the room? That then moves into mm-hmm. um, design, which is about specifying here are the requirements for the room. There's then some engineering that goes on, and the output of the engineering is I need a loudspeaker with these particular characteristics. I then go to my product catalog. Does that loudspeaker exist? Yes. Tick. Happy days. Does it not exist? Okay. I've I've got to go elsewhere. And for us as an engine uh, for us as an industry to actually start becoming engineers rather than just glorified retailers of product. Right. Well, that sounds like a great uh, goal, and uh, it, and it's probably a huge, huge undertaking to get that switch to take place. But you did mention teaching at Cedia, and uh, that may, brings to mind Cedia Expo in September. Are you able to travel and come to Indianapolis for the for the event? I I dearly hope so. I dearly, dearly, dearly hope that the powers that be will arrange some kind of travel corridor between the UK. And the US, I'm I'm down to teach quite a few Cedia courses. We're also going to be doing something really, really cool with Trinov on the show floor. 
uh, where rather than building a theatre that we have in previous years, because we just weren't sure what social distancing regulations were, or attendance is going to be, we're actually going to build a little micro learning zone and do two 15 minute sessions an hour for the entirety of the show. Just, just talking about all kinds of things to do with experiential high performance AV design. So I'm, I'm desperate to go and I'm, I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to it. And if I do go, I think it's going to be an amazing show because the, the industry, I think, just has so much pent-up demand for seeing each other, for having conversations with actual individuals where they're never accidentally on mute to, you know, just, just, just to be together. <laughs> I, I really, really, really hope I'm allowed to travel. Well, um, I am local, so it's very easy for me. I'm fortunate, and I will definitely be there, and I hope you are as well, Peter. Uh, Peter Aylett, thank you so much for your generous time today. It's been great talking to you. I hope hope to see you in September, and hope you have a great second half of 2021. Thank you, Jeremy. Really appreciate it. Peter Aylett is partner at HTE. Uh, you can learn more about his company at hte.design or find him on LinkedIn um, advocating for industry standards as he usually is. So hope uh, you can connect with him. Uh, And that wraps up today's show. Thanks to everyone for joining us. And if you're new to the podcast, please share, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. And check out all the latest residential tech news at restechtoday.com. Until next time, please stay safe, stay inspired, and let us know if you have a great story to tell. Residential tech, 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 t